You're listening to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Hi, friends. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. If you are a new listener, welcome. We are so glad that you have found us. If you're a friend of the pod, thank you very much for coming back and listening to us again. We are excited to bring you the second part of a two-part episode on fertility, infertility, and technology. Last week's episode, we started off by talking about the emotions and the taboo around infertility and the expectations of couples. And with that, I will ask the other half of my couple, my dyad. Otherwise known as a person, (laughs) an individual person. (laughs) Well, if you want to get technical. (laughs) John Philbeck. Hi. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. So how did you find the first part of this episode? I I thought it was really great. I hope our listeners did too. Um, The interview was was really fascinating, just so so nuanced, so many uh, insights that I had never even considered before. Yeah, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one of our interview with Dr. Julie Bendeman, I might suggest that you hit pause and go back and listen to part one before this one. You won't be sorry. Yeah, it's it'll just, I think, bring out the richness of the second part of our interview. I didn't want to stop talking. Yeah. Or I should say listening. And I don't think we have even fully tapped Dr. Bindeman's expertise for this show. Yeah, she's amazing. So in the first part of this interview, we talked about the difficulties of infertility and dealing with it and how it's kind of taboo. And there aren't a lot of supports for someone dealing with with infertility and how unfortunate that is. Yeah. And so in part two, we continue our conversation with Dr. Bindeman and we go a little bit deeper into the technology involved in assisted reproductive technology. How much science is now involved in reproduction and all the different things that science can do, but also all the different moral implications and difficult decisions yeah exactly yeah that that can come along with having better information and being able to do more fancy tricks with science and that's a really you know sloppy way of saying it but the thing that really i guess i found sort of frightening was you know i i love some data I love me some data. <laughs> you do. Every, everyone says that about uh, you. Right? But as science is getting better and better at diagnosing difficulties, abnormalities earlier in pregnancy, that's a good thing, but it also introduces moral dilemmas into pregnancies and how do you act? How do you respond? Yeah. And then we also talk about when things aren't picked up, although we have fantastic testing that can be done fairly early on 
it doesn't pick up everything. And what are the implications then when you get to 12 weeks or 16 weeks or 20 weeks or later even, and it's determined that there are abnormalities that are not compatible with life? I can't even imagine every hour that goes by when you're in that stage, the kind of difficulty just existing it would have to be. Oh, yeah. I, I Facing that kind of decision. Yeah, yeah. It, I was thinking that very thing when we were talking with Dr. Bindeman is it must just be like getting through minute by minute thinking about, it's almost like you're staring down this train coming at yeah. you and yeah. you know you have have to make a decision. And because as she discusses, depending on your zip code, what state you live in, you may only have until 12 weeks to make that decision. And if you find out at 20 weeks, then you have some even more difficult decisions to make. And I just can't even imagine how painful that is. And she talks about, about her work with women who are facing that. And it's so nice to know that there are specialist um, therapists who who are trained in dealing with these kinds of issues and who are who are familiar with these issues and have um, you know therapeutic treatment options yeah uh, exactly yeah that they've, that they've trained in to be able to use uh-huh and how to prepare you know a couple if they get some bad news and to help work through what this means for you and here are the options and by you know don't assume the word option necessarily means abortion. Right now that is an option, but think about planning ahead for what this child would will need. If you're going to bring to term a pregnancy where you know that there will be disability, you have to prepare for that. And you're going to need to muster every bit of resource that you have and everyone around you to be able to deal with it yourself and then to to be able to love and support the child that has, you know, needs beyond the normal level. Yeah, yeah. So it's really a fascinating discussion. It is not just about the A word. It is about the advances that science has made, which is good news, but also the downside of having this information that comes along with these scientific advances. So please stay tuned for part two of this fascinating interview with Dr. Julie Bendeman. Okay, so back to ART or assisted reproductive technologies. One of the sort of fortunate aspects of scientific advancements is that we have the ability to do some more extensive testing of the viability and the genetic material of the embryo. Well, and let's take a step back. Back. Yeah, so yeah. let's talk about why people might even do this. Yes. Because the step back is that as we've unlocked more of the genome and we understand more about which genes and which chromosomes do what and where they're located and how they're turned on, we learn more about what an individual might have in terms of risks that 
uh, they could pass on to a potential child. So for instance, a trait like Tay-Sachs, oftentimes um, if you're of different heritages, you might get screened for different things. So if you're of the Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, Tay-Sachs is one of the screening tests that that you get screened for because it's more prevalent in that population. Uh And that's simple blood tests. If one person in the marriage is positive, then the other partner gets tested too. If both people test positive as carriers for Tay-Sachs, then utilizing reproductive technology might be the course of action that couple might want to take to minimize the chance of carrying a pregnancy that is affected by Tay-Sachs because Tay-Sachs is a debilitating degenerative disease that is just agonizing as a parent to have to watch. Mm -hmm. So that then opens the door, depending upon what we might have in our genetic code, to needing to test an embryo. And so there's a technology developed called pre-implantation genetic screening, or PGS, and that can lead to pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which takes an embryo or a blastocyst before it's made it to to a certain point of growth before we'd put it back, um, it takes a cell out and it analyzes the chromosomal or genetic makeup of that cell because in every cell of our body is our DNA. So it can look at what chromosomally might be going on with this particular embryo. Does it have all 46 chromosomes as it should? Are they located in the right place? Are there any parts of them missing? Um, Are any parts additional? All of those things give information. Additional information, again, if you're looking at something specific, because we know that parents might be carriers of something specific, you can look for a specific gene like Tay-Sachs, and you can get a sense of whether or not the embryo would be a potential carrier of it or would be affected by it, whether it's a dominant or recessive gene. Uh Um, And again, that that has a lot of consequences for a family, having a child with a disability or having a child with a lifelong illness. And and it's not, here's where I think it gets really tricky for people because for sometimes it, it can feel like playing God. Okay, well, now you have to make a decision. And are we making a decision that we value less certain human beings than others? And, and I can certainly understand that viewpoint. I think another viewpoint too is to look at it and to say, well, what is a parent? What are my resources? What are my abilities and what are my capabilities? What am I able to do? It's not to say that this potential person isn't lovable. Of course, Uh that's not, I don't think the question it's the question of, can I, can I do justice to this child by giving them for whatever their lifespan might be, giving them a safe and a secure and can I give them the healthcare that they're going to need? Uh, yeah, exactly. Can I give them the attention that they're going to need? What is that going to mean in terms of our financial situation? So there's so many different questions that potential parents have to start asking themselves as they get this information uh-huh. and having to make the decisions based upon this information. And if you are fortunate enough to have other children, what does it mean for your family unit if this new infant is going to require so much attention? Yeah. Again, like you said, it's not that it's not a loved being, but it's the reality that you would require a lot of time and resources that might be taken away from other things and other 
kids. And and I, I'm not trying to be political here, but when those federal dollars are removed from the care that it takes to have children that have disabilities or adults that have disabilities, that also paints a really difficult picture if you're not fortunate to have inherited a fortune or something like that. Oh, yeah, because this is not – I mean, if you if you have a child with a severe disability, this is – you know, this is lifelong. Yeah. And yeah, and it's the resources and the programs and the advocacy. And again, I'm I'm not trying to say that those things aren't worthwhile. They absolutely are. But if you're looking at it critically too and saying, okay, well, where are those dollars going to come from? For those people that can't assuredly say, oh, well, we can provide that, then it, it absolutely becomes another layer to this question. Uh-huh. And this new technology that we're starting to see on news reports called CRISPR, it, it's colloquially described as a gene editing machine, which kind of, but it's kind of like it's a repair. So it's like you have a rip in the seam of your favorite pair of pants. And here's a way that you can stitch the rip together so that it doesn't look like there's been a rip in your pants. So I'm oversimplifying it. But, you know, in the genetic code, it's able to splice out genes that are replicating that are not useful for the genome. So, of course, people get really worried about this and they start talking about designer babies. Yeah. And absolutely, with technology, that is something that could be done. Or with PGS, you could self-select to only have male embryos or female embryos, depending on, on what you might want. And with CRISPR, you know, maybe it's important to blue eyes or blonde hair or brown hair or whatever that might be. Uh-huh. That's not the intention behind the technology. The intention, again, is to look at something like T-Sacs and to be able to take out that part of the genetic program so that it can be an embryo without that issue going on. Uh And so I look at it from that point of view where, and, and I would think that the people who are concerned that embryos are people might also look at it from that point of view of, hey, well, if we could correct some of these anomalies, you know, what, what might that mean? It might mean a decrease in the abortion rate, or it might mean a decrease in terms of discarding unused embryos. Mm -hmm. So can't believe I'm arguing for that point of view, but here we are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So again, it's a different picture. And and depending on what your views are and what your sense of technology and right or wrong and and when life begins, these are complicated questions. So depending on what your views are might depend on how you fall in terms of this kind of technology. Uh Uh-huh. And then what about genetic anomalies or abnormalities that are picked up after implantation? So another cool thing that's happened within the last five or six years is being able to look at what's called free cell DNA. And so that's after a person is pregnant with a simple blood test, we can identify, and I say we like I have anything to do with this, but it's (laughs) so not part of what I do. Um, But scientists can identify what is the fetal DNA code that's separate from what the mother's DNA code is. Uh So at nine, 10 weeks gestation from a blood test, you might be able to learn whether or not 
your potential baby is impacted with a trisomy anomaly. And those are the three that have the most scientific backing, although more and more and more being able to be screened with this test. Those are the ones that are the common screening agents. So it's trisomy 13, trisomy 18, and trisomy 21. Uh And so it enables a person to get information, to be informed, and then to be able to make a decision about what should happen with the pregnancy. And this has gained a lot of news out in one of the, I want to say maybe it was Iceland, where they're utilizing this technology and there is this big uproar about how they are trying to wipe out Down syndrome within their population. And I don't think that's quite what the news report was getting at, because certainly there are people where they get the diagnosis. And one of the things I counsel couples that come to me who might have gotten a scary prenatal diagnosis is we talk about, well, you know, what might that look like for you? Who would be in your support system? Have you reached out to other parents that are actively parenting a child that has this same kind of issue? And what is their experience like? Um, so I think that's really important too, to get all sides of it uh-huh. so that you can make an informed decision based upon what your individual capabilities are. Yeah, that's great advice. So trisomy, um, a trisomy abnormality leads to Down's syndrome. It, it can. Trisomy 21 is yeah. specifically Down syndrome. It's mm-hmm. an extra chromosome on the 21st chromosome. Okay. Trisomy 18 is an extra chromosome on the 18th chromosome. It has different physiological yeah. features. And most people, if they have trisomy 18, tend not to survive birth or pregnancy. It is a very rare exception of those that might, but they are very impaired individuals. And then trisomy 13, my my understanding too is that that is another, again, additional chromosome on the 13th chromosome that is not very compatible with, with life. With life, yeah. So is one thing that you counsel families about if they have a high likelihood of trisomy 21, there are different options that we have right now currently? Yes. So typically trisomy 21 might happen just as a genetic fluke. Or if you have others in your family that have Down syndrome, you might have more of a likelihood than to have a baby with Down syndrome. And certainly if you've had previous children with Down syndrome, so whether that is a pregnancy that you carried to term or one that was terminated, that also changes your risk factor for having a baby with Downs as does your age. So age is another correlated risk factor with potentially having a baby with Down syndrome. Uh The older you are, the more likely there is a chromosomal anomaly anyway within your egg. And so the the potential that it, it could be down. Yeah. So right now, if you have your embryos tested before pregnancy, you have the option to discard the embryo. If you don't have the information at pregnancy because you've had sex and gotten pregnant, quote unquote, the old fashioned way, yeah. which my colleagues and I now like to joke about, we're like, oh, that's not going to the doctor. Um, <laughs> it's sex in the bedroom actually happens. <laughs> and so you might find out with this early kind of screening, like I mentioned, which can happen between nine and 11 weeks, 
you might find out if you don't do the screening, you might find out at 12 weeks at a new couple, then it doesn't matter at what point you find out. You'll have genetic counseling and you and your partner will talk about what is it that that we feel we are capable of doing. So there are some families that don't feel like they're capable of raising a child with this level of this potential level of a disability. And if we're talking just about down, it's, it's really hard because that's a very gray diagnosis. We see on TV, a lot of the high functioning people with down, which yeah. is great. Yeah. And it's, great that we are seeing that in our society, that it's normalizing it, that it's showing all the potential a person can have. What we don't see are we don't see the people that have to have a lot of heart surgeries because heart defects can correlate with a down diagnosis. Uh We don't see kids that are unable to regulate themselves into adulthood. And so you see these adults that might be throwing temper tantrums and are physically aggressive. Mm -hmm. These are things we don't see. So it's a spectrum. And what's really hard is that you can't diagnose where a person's going to fall on that spectrum in utero. Uh It's just impossible to do. Yeah. So I think what makes it really hard for a couple is that you don't have a lot of information beyond a diagnosis that has this range then you have to make a decision. Uh huh. So they give you kind of a, a likelihood. So it's like a, you know, it's a one in 2000 chance or something. Right. So, uh-huh. oh, sorry, if we're talking about the nuchal fold, right, that's a ratio, an odds yeah. ratio, whereas uh-huh. the maternity 21 or panorama or harmony tests, those tend to be a definitive yes, no. Like okay. You're either positive or you're not. Okay. Um, still, whenever you have a screening, the next thing that you do is you have a diagnostic test. So again, depending on where you are gestationally, that might be cryovillus sampling if you're earlier on in pregnancy, or you might have to wait until about 16 weeks to have an amniocentesis, which is when they can have a definitive diagnosis in terms of what is going on chromosomally. So most people, you know, if it's not something that was definitive, they'll wait and they'll they'll want the definitive diagnosis because nobody wants to feel like they're making the wrong choice. Oh, sure. 16 weeks is when you can do the chorionic villus sampling. I think you have to be before then. That's when you can do amnio, right? Oh, gotcha. The chorion villus sampling you can do up until I want to say 13 weeks. Gotcha. It's not a huge window if you're doing a nuchal fold and you're doing it later on. Uh Uh-huh. Just because after that point, you can't access the chorion. Yeah, okay. So, But what I'm trying to get at is, you know, if, if you're waiting to get better information and all of us want to get the best information we can and you have to wait till 16... Then you're, you're gambling depending on your zip code. Yes. Exactly. No, I, I, I promise you I was getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of this also depends too on where you live. If you live in a state that has really restrictive abortion laws and doesn't allow for abortions after 12 weeks gestation, then you are really backed into a corner to make a very quick decision and not get second opinions or further testing unless you have the means to travel out of state potentially to access an abortion. And again, I'm trying to be really balanced and say abortion is not the only option, but it is an option. Certainly people will carry to term and they'll Uh choose to raise the child themselves or you can carry to term and you can choose to put that child up for adoption, special needs adoption. Mm -hmm. So people, again, in the audience have, have a idea of what those range of options are. Sure. It's important to know that 
pregnancy in and of itself, even under the most ideal conditions with the best prenatal care, isn't without adverse outcomes. So pregnancy in and of itself is not a sure bet. And people, because pregnancy is normal, it's what people do, make the assumption that it's also safe. But pregnancy is not inherently safe. And again, that that doesn't matter on whether or not you're getting prenatal care or not. Yep you can still have issues within a pregnancy. Uh So the later you wait, and again, depending on what state you are, the more difficult it might be to access an abortion. The Supreme Court had said that abortion should be legal up until 24 weeks, which they had defined as viability. And certain states adopted that as codified law and then even put in exceptions for post 24 week abortions, most of those states will say that uh, the exceptions lie in if it's the health, including mental and physical health of the mother, or the uh, health of the potential child that states will allow for abortions. But again, those are not the majority of states. Those are just some. And then finding an abortion provider who is competent and capable to provide an abortion at a later point in pregnancy There are four that are known in the country. There are some more that practice that aren't known. Yeah. But it makes it very difficult to access because you're going to a select group of states. And that's great if you have the financing for it. Later term abortions is not something that's considered to be an in-network expense. Yeah. So <laughs> all of the providers are out of network. So check your out-of-network benefits. Uh-huh. I'm sorry for my sarcasm there. No. So let me just, so four, one, two, three, four providers. Yes. Yeah. And okay. And two, two shift off at the same clinic. So, wow. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is this doesn't happen in a vacuum. There is an actual woman that is involved in this. Yes. <laughs> and it's not like a really fun time. No, not at all. So for most people, it is the most agonizing decision ever. I can imagine, that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, to, to feel that you have to make this choice for the majority of women that know they're pregnant, that are going through this testing, these are wanted pregnancies. Yeah. So I'm not speaking for all people who get abortions, but certainly people who are going through this kind of testing. These are really wanted, expected, hoped for pregnancy. Uh-huh. And and certainly, you know, if you go through IVF and you get a poor prenatal diagnosis, that makes it even harder. Yeah. One note I want to make is that you can have screenings that come back perfectly and then get to your 20-week anatomy scan and find that there are congenital issues that have nothing to do with genetics or chromosomes, so nothing you could have looked for. Uh So perhaps that means that the heart didn't form properly or that there are no kidneys to be found Uh or that the brain is underdeveloped or there's a lack of development in the brain. Uh Uh-huh. Or that the organs have developed on the outside of the body instead of the inside of the the bodily cavity. So I'm just just to throw out examples there because we're talking about all these genetic things and certainly the counter argument is, wow, now we're practicing as a eugenic kind of society. But there's other kinds of things too where we're talking about compatibility with life. Yeah, exactly. um, Or incompatibility with life most of the time. So Uh looking at 
quality and quantity of life issues. Uh And to put people, especially those that are not in the medical field, having to make these kinds of decisions and the emotional weight that they carry, really, really difficult. And, And any kind of pregnancy loss, so that even goes back to our previous conversation around IVF, that sticks with a person. And it's something that gets mourned. And it's not something that we forget. Just like if you were to lose your your spouse or you're to lose a parent, it'd be sort of silly a month later for someone to check in and to be like, so you over it yet? Yeah. That's what we do with pregnancy loss. So whether it's a miscarriage or a stillbirth or terminating for medical reasons, there's this expectation that because a baby wasn't born, that there's a shorter grieving period, Uh which again, baffles me. Yeah. But I think that's a whole other conversation for another day. Yeah. And I would just tack on here. I think that's also true for miscarriages. Um, Yep. I included that too. Absolutely. Yes. Spontaneous abortion. Yes. I think that people just because it wasn't, I I don't know, somehow the child is less or it's less to the parents because it didn't make it to 40 weeks and, you, you know, you didn't have Lamaze class or, you know, whatever. Right. You never held the baby. You never saw the baby. But again, you've dreamed of the baby. You've hoped for the baby. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been so invaluable and I'm sure will be so invaluable to so many. So thank you so much for the important work that you do and for lending us your time and expertise, Julie. Absolutely, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. If you enjoy our show, an easy way to help support us is to tell one friend about our show and how they can find us. Grab their phone and subscribe. If you have to, you'd be surprised how many people don't know how to find podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe yourself to our podcast so that you can be sure that you won't miss an episode. It will automatically show up in your podcast player each week. A big thanks to Dr. Julie Bendeman for today's interview. And of course, to Dr. John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good. Follow us on Facebook at Women Transcend. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode. <laughs>